원하소 So I think many of you found in this environment where we have so little mediation, so little in the way of a buffer zone between ourselves and our own minds, we're kind of getting it in our face, so to speak, that sometimes the mind is not a very pleasant neighborhood to hang out in. You might want some relief. And so very briefly, because I'm eager to get to the meditation, three exit strategies when your mind is just kind of obnoxious. Uh, and one is to come out. All of this will be familiar, but just a different phrasing. Just come out of the mind, out of this whole realm of conceptual congestion, rumination, OCDD, and all of that, and come out into a space that is very accessible, that it's quiet, that's non-conceptual, very easy to access, and can be very restful. And that is to come out into the body. So the, into the infirmary, just into the space of the body, and just like watching waves wash up on, on shore and then flow back into the sea, just watching the undulations, the gentle flow, the ebb and flow of the in and out breath, get you out of your mind. Because this is a really non-conceptual space. It's quiet. It's not mental. It's somatic. So there's one possibility, really good, especially in the supine position, but it can be good in any position. And another one is to come out even further and that is to come out, you can just go out and stand, or you can go out for a walk, a slow walk, a fast walk, but then really let your awareness come out into nature, out into the sky, the clouds, the, the surrounding jungle, and so forth. And that's very refreshing, as long as you leave the rumination behind. Leave the rumination in your mind, mind your own business, and then come out into the world, you know, where it's so refreshing and large, and where you're not so much the center even though you have to be, of course, observing from your perspective, when you're really attending closely to the people that are on the streets, the people here and the, you know, the staff in the mind center and so on, then as you're attending, you see each one, every sentient being, not only human, but all the other creatures here, they're all in the center. Each one is in the center of his or her or its mandala. And so then you see, oh, there are a lot of centers here, and that expands the mind, and it gets you out of your own mind, out of your own mind, which is very refreshing. Right, spacious, lets off steam. You just kind of oh, let your awareness come out into space. So those are two strategies. Out into the body, out, out into the surrounding environment, out into nature. And the other strategy is the one we're about to return to, and that is to go inwards beyond the mind. And that is, once again, we're leaving the mind behind. That whole realm of cogitation, personal history, thinking, imagination, all of that, all that whole domain of the mind, well, this time we're just poking right through beyond it, but inside beyond, right? Inside beyond. So that crucial distinction that we, we've noted in settling the mind in its natural state, that distinction of recognizing the simultaneity of stillness and motion, stillness and motion of the mind, except for this time we're not even attending to the mind not an awareness of awareness. So we're just going into stillness, right? Into stillness. And to connect very briefly with that more philosophical excursion from yesterday, and that is, as we're going in, then attend to the mere absence of thought, whatever thought comes up. So Rosario just clearing the throat and immediately just silencing it. Whatever thought comes up, doesn't matter what it is. 
whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Just as soon as it comes up, no. And then in that awareness of the absence of thought, that awareness of non-conceptuality, like the, the paper that had no writing on it. Once you are gazing at the paper and you see there's no writing on it, then what do you see? A paper with no writing on it. But you see a paper with no writing. You, you do see something. You're not just, look, no writing, but paper with no writing. And so likewise, no concept. What's without concept? Well, awareness. And your home. So there's the, there's as in the little conversation, a little bit of dialogue with Jordan yesterday, there's the complex negation, an absence of thought and the presence of awareness. And if you're not attending to anything else, that's the real catch here. This is, again, I can't st st too strongly overemphasize it. This is not open presence, not choices awareness. We're not interested in any appearances whatsoever. And so withdrawing from all sensory appearances, and then if we just snuff out, release, just extinguish any thought that comes up, then that which remains in the awareness of the absence of thought is the awareness of the presence of awareness and welcome home. And so you've, you've escaped the mind again, but this by coming inwards in the direction of the substrate consciousness rather than out into space. Right? So it's a very good strategy, very restful. So we'll do the oscillation this time. Keep it simple. Don't make it complicated. Don't second guess yourself as we set up the oscillation and use it just to the extent necessary, insofar as helpful. Right? I won't reiterate what I said yesterday about this. But when you're coming in and you're looking for, as you're probing in in this cognoscopy and seeking to just, not even so much seeking, just examining closely what arises when you attend to your sense of being the agent who is inverting and releasing awareness. What is your sense of being the agent? When you probe inwards, just what comes to mind? And if nothing comes to mind, then be happy. Then nothing comes to mind, and you're still aware of awareness. If something does come to mind, simply know what it is, and then release. So we're just kind of peeking in, like opening a curtain, yoo-hoo, and then out into space. And then inward, open the curtain, yoo-hoo. Kind of like a cuckoo clock. Okay? And just see, see what you see. And whatever you see is what you see. There's no right answer. What you see is, and if you don't see anything, don't be discouraged. Maybe the agent is a cockroach. Disappears on sight. Who knows? Okay, let's practice.
hear the bell and let your, your shoulders immediately droop, your face relax, your whole body have a melting quality as any excess tension in this overinflated tire immediately becomes diffused as you allow your body to settle in this natural state. and very deliberately allowing your respiration to settle. And take full advantage of this precious time here and now to release fiction, that which is no longer real or is not yet real, the past and the future. And free of grasping, free of hope and fear, rest in stillness in this present moment. with your eyes open, at least partially, your awareness resting in space evenly with no object, not deliberately focusing your attention anywhere. And all that can be said is that you are present aware, without distraction, without grasping. And in that withdrawal of interest from all appearances and objects, be aware of what's left, what remains. This immediate non-conceptual awareness of being aware.
insofar as you find it helpful, venture into the oscillation, withdrawing with some intensity from all appearances into the very experience of being aware, then releasing out into space with no object. then probe more deeply into your experience of being the one, the agent, who is withdrawing and releasing the attention. And as you invert, probingly, simply see what you see, and then release out into space with no object.
and at any time when you feel the confidence that you can hold your own ground, letting awareness rest in its own place, knowing itself, without any further elaboration. And simply do that. Be aware of being aware. And keep it simple. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Olasu. It's kind of obvious that this whole strategy with these three methods of shamatha is a strategy for <coughs> for retracting the tentacles of grasping, grasping especially of onto I and mine. And they extend, these tentacles definitely extend considerably beyond the body. They can extend out over a whole country. Right. If you identify with your country, and then somebody says, you know, people from, if you're from Uruguay, and somebody says something detrimental, something derogatory about Uruguay, it hurts. Oh, why do you say something like that? That's so hurtful. So hurtful. Uruguay. It's my country. Right? Something like, oh, you're hurt. Right? So withdraw the tentacles. And then I was thinking if somebody really wanted to torture me, they would get hold of my cell phone. I said, okay. And they get a big sharp nail. I say, okay, Alan, watch closely. Right across the face of the big gash right across the face and, the, and make, make me watch. And insofar as I'm identifying with, I mean, it's okay to do with those cell phones. That's no big deal. <laughs> They're not mine. So scratch away. Let's see how it turns out. But mine, I mean, it would be like, <laughs> not pretty well said at all. <laughs> That was the scream of seeing the face of my iPhone being defaced and knowing, and I'm, I pardon the words, but this is going to take some major plastic surgery. It is, after all, plastic to get it right again. And then, of course, if somebody, if I scratch my skin or get a pimple right in the middle of my nose, big red one, with a white tip. Everybody coming to me just wanting to pinch. <laughs> Embarrassing. Oh, I can't stand that. Can't stand that. So we withdraw. Withdraw. We withdraw into the mind. And now, as we're seeking to observe our own minds from the inside, then not even identifying with our own minds, the thoughts, the images, desires, emotions, even observing them from the inside and seeing they're not mine, they're just events arising in space. I didn't do them. They're just arising. They arise independent upon causing conditions. Ca causing the conditions like cloud formations in the sky. They're not my clouds. They're not really my sky, although I am witnessing them. And you're just seeing these cloud formations, the thoughts, images, memories, fantasies, just coming up and dissolving of their own accord. And if we have having retracted the tentacles of grasping onto I and mine, retracted right into awareness itself, and then withdrawing the interest even from the mind, let alone the body and the surrounding environment, right into awareness itself. But now as we do this, and this is what Padmasambhava is challenging us to do, is that rather unconsciously, there still may be a cognitive fusion a sense of grasping onto I am with respect to some inner appearance, some appearances arising very much inside of 
I am the person meditating. I am the meditator. I am the meditator. If somebody says, you're a really good meditator, you really impress me, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes, I. I'm in charge here. Ah. And an appearance comes up. Appearance may come up. And if you're not aware of it, the easiest thing to do is to cognitive, cognitively fuse with it. And then there's the lion at the gate. You're going to stop there. You're not going to get into awareness itself because you're still stuck with a cognitive fusion, the identification with, as I or mine, probably I, of some appearance arising from within. And that's what we're seeking to simply observe. Right. And observe it, as it were, from the inside out. So that, too, becomes an objective appearance, rather than some appearance lurking in the back that will fuse with and think, that's me. As people can look at the reflection of their, of their face in the mirror and say, that's me. Or they can look at you know, their bodies, just, oh, this is me. You know, we can, or this is mine, or whatever. But now we're just coming in, 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 and just seeing appearances, appearances, appearances. And even the appearance of I, the agent, arising now as an objective appearance, and viewing that from the inside out. So that too appears, simply arising in the space of the mind, and you're coming even more in it, and releasing that appearance. And in that release, 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 of course, what's left, what's always left? Just the awareness, which is not an objective appearance, right? And when you really scale that off, it becomes unconfigured, it melts, then it's just a substrate consciousness. So, coming to the end of the week, I want to see if I can polish all the mail off. We've neglected it. I've neglected it for a couple of days. So, I'm going to shuffle them just so I can be oh, a lot. And this one's always the most interesting. Buddha held up a white lotus. I thought maybe I could hold, hold up a clean. It's not working. Okay. I'll try again later. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay, now they're properly shuffled. Following on the issue of ill will, if you have made earnest attempts over time to make peace with a person, and it's still negatively affects your shamatha meditation. You sense it's best to have little or no dealing with this person. Yeah, that could be. That could be. Sure. I mean, as a parallel, really quickly, because we do have a lot of questions here, but especially young monks, sometimes old monks also, but young monks um, may have you know, quite a lot of sexual desire. It goes with the age. And so when one is a monk in training, then one tends to avoid going to places where we'll, one will see women that arouse a lot of lust. So you don't go to Malibu Beach and just hang out. <laughs> you stay in Van Nuys. Or something like that. But you don't go to places that aggravate your mental afflictions. That's very much part of you know, being a monk. Keep it together, because you're still vulnerable. You're still vulnerable. So keep your eyes down. Don't go there. And likewise, if that's the case for lust, so it is the case for anger, ill will, hatred. If there's somebody who, you, at, at this phase in your practice, if you encounter that person, engage with that person, it rouses up the ill will or anger, then yeah, if you can, avoid for the time being. So you're doing nobody a favor by engaging in that person and having it just stimulate your anger. 
So how shall we, how shall we prepare our minds so that if you come across this person or hear about this person, in the future it doesn't stir up rumination, such as resentment, etc. Well, two ways. <laughs> this is going to sound really novel. One is if you can really simply find peace of mind. You can simply on your own, in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own awareness, if you can find peace of mind and taste it, like just, you know, like a glass of water in the hand. I know what that water tastes like. Peace of mind. If you know what it's like to have a mind that's relaxed, that's still, that's clear, it's in something of a flow. And to get there, you're not dependent upon other people doing this, that, or the other thing for you. It's pretty much give me a little quiet space or not. Because you can do this when you get accustomed to it. When you get the hang of it, you can do it in the subway. It won't be very deep samadhi. It probably shouldn't be. But still, you can have peace of mind in a crowded subway. I've been in New York City many times. And there it is. They're very crowded, very noisy, a lot of coming and going. That doesn't mean your mind has to be noisy and coming and going. That's up to you. And so if you've tasted peace of mind through your shamatha practice, which means peace, shamatha means peace, quiescence, tranquility, serenity. And of what kind? Mind. So shamatha is peace of mind. If you've tasted that, And then you encounter a person that you found difficult, maybe arouses resentment and so on. You can just make a decision. I see the invitation to leave my peace of mind behind and get caught up in rumination and all the old habituation, but I really much prefer peace of mind. So no thank you. This person cannot control my mind. Certainly not from a distance. And so there's one point that you have an alternative. And it's taking control of your own mind and saying, it's not a place I want to go. I want to be kind to myself. And getting caught up in that old habituation is not the place for me. So there's one possibility. And the other one, this is almost too predictable. It's four immeasurables. It's the four immeasurables. It's coming with a loving kindness starting in the center, gradually extending outwards, and then drawing on all of your wisdom. So in the conversation yesterday with Maria, Two points, and I want to reiterate them. Well, there are other angles. Shantideva's whole sixth chapter of the Bodhicharvatara, Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, all about patience. He's giving you 20 or 30 tools there to overcome that so that you can engage with people who are challenging, difficult, and so forth, and just come in with a myriad of insights, angles, perspectives that just erode the old habitual pattern of responding with ill will and resentment. So there it is to break down the barriers. And of course, the most obvious thing and the most direct thing is to replace that with compassion. Because wherever we naturally or habitually respond with ill will, we can more realistically respond with compassion. It's, it's always true. It's always true. It's more realistic to respond with compassion. So there's that. Yep. Finally, equanimity. So, I mean, these, I mean, there are many other practices, but this, this is a pretty good combo. The shamatha, the four measurables, and then deepen it with these background teachings from Shantideva and so on. So, there we are. And, you know, there's also an element. This is important. And that is, I remember years ago, it was late 70s. What would that be, 35 years ago? Late 70s when I was in the monastery in Switzerland. And I'd been training. I was a monk. I'd been a monk for years already. Quite intensive training all through the 70s, so maybe seven, eight years of you know, doing nothing else. 
learning Dharma, practicing, meditating, beginning to teach, doing a lot of interpreting. So it was just kind of like there wasn't anything going on besides Dharma. And yet, in the midst of that, um, I would see anger coming up on occasion and this mental affliction. And I remember going into my teacher's room, Gisharapnan's room, I just feeling really low, really down. And just, yeah, just that. Discouraged, there's the word. Discouraged, really discouraged. And I just came into him and they said, you know, Genla, gosh, I've been practicing for years and I look at the mind and it's still, still prone to these old spikes of this and that, this rubbish. This really is rubbish, you know? And I get discouraged. Still here after you. And his response was, hey, you've been practicing for a few years. You've had these mental evictions for how long? It takes time. It takes time. That's it. He was, he was tough in a very good way, but he was tough. He never pampered me. He never coddled me. He was, he was kind, he was compassionate. But when it was time to be tough, he was tough. He said, deal with it. You know? Is this worth doing or not? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elaborate a little bit. Is this worth doing or not? Is it worth the effort to really try to purify the mind? of ill will, malevolence, resentment, resentment, and so forth, let alone craving, greed, so forth. Is it worth it or not? Can you be happy if you don't do the work? And for my, my, as soon as the questions are posed, the answer is already there. So then, however long it takes, that's how long it takes. So, and so the, the moral of the story is, it's very easy to be impatient with one's tendencies to be impatient. And so at least there, be patient that it's going to take some time to overcome the tendency of impatience, anger, hostility, and so forth. It's going to take some time because the tracks, the, the habits are deep. But it's worth doing. It's worth doing. However long it takes. Oh, yeah. Once shamat is achieved, do the, city, do the cities arise spontaneously or there, is there specific training to generate them? Is there any text explaining in detail how they arise and how they are trained? Yes, there is. I'll answer the second question first. It comes up in a lot of texts, but the clearest, most just, what's the word, what to say, um, just straightforward presentation is in the um, chapter on, uh, I think it's called, I don't quite remember how Nyanamoli Bhikkhu translates them, but it's in the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification, which as I said, you can download from the web for free. Marvelous, because it's a big, big, heavy, thick book that I have at home, and I have it on my computer. There's a whole chapter on that. And it's in the samadhi section. So it's, it's not in the wisdom section, not in the ethics section. It's ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. It's a whole section there. Uh, so it's quite clear. Conceptually, actually, quite clear as well. But in terms of the question, it depends on the individual. That is, is it guaranteed that on the day that you achieve shamatha, like a graduation prize, uh, you know, like you've just graduated from undergraduate work in shamatha, and you get your nice diploma, uh, that suddenly you get, you know, mom and dad give you some nice cities. <laughs> you know, like, how, how many did you want? <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Uh, at the same time, some people develop cities without having achieved shamatha. They may not be very, be very robust, but they can come up karmically. Some people just have spontaneously ex exceptional abilities, um, kind of paranormal abilities. Some people have a proclivity or a special kind of intuitive openness to extrasensory perception without shamatha. And that being the case, some people achieving shamatha, they may get just immediately some perks coming up because they have a lot of momentum from past lives. 
Overall, once you've achieved shamatha, then, then cities, paranormal abilities are said to be easily accomplished. And then you just go for specific training in that. Uh, so Buddha Gosa gives a whole array of training. It's really, really quite fascinating because it has to do with the form realm, form and formless realm. So it's conceptually really very intriguing. Uh, and this means you're kind of going out of your way. You're going off, you, you are on the, on the shamatha path, you achieve shamatha. But now instead of just going straight ahead into Vipassana and onto the path of liberation, you're saying, well, let's, let's hang out here and smell the, smell, the, smell the flowers and go off into developing cities. And if the motivation is really benevolent, authentic, that could be interesting. And you're just simply using your power of samadhi to develop them. And that's what he describes, just using sheer power of samadhi. On the other hand, here we are with this so-called precious human life. So rare. That if all you got out of this life was some paranormal abilities, That's it? That's all you got? <laughs> Just some paranormal ability? They don't purify the mind. That's technology. So exactly why did you go there? You wanted to show off or what? What was that about? If one is following, and I'll just speak now within the, the Mahayana and more specifically the Dzogchen context, if it just follows just an absolutely straight path, Develop your shamatha, go directly into Vipassana. Don't, take a rest, you can have a day. You know. Enjoy the bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Cool, okay, now back to work. And go right into Vipassana. You know. With that fusion, with that, with that muscle of shamatha behind it, and then venturing into the insight, to actually be gaining insight into the lack of inherent nature of all phenomena, to really fathom what is meant by the dreamlike nature of waking reality, the extent to which this reality is really dreamlike. And therefore, I mean, an immediate implication is that it's this waking reality is susceptible to being changed simply by the realizing its emptiness of inherent nature and designating it differently. Because it's not only that the objects, this is a bit subtle, but I'll be brief, that it's, it's not only that the objects we identify, like that tree, that hill, those shrubs, this person, it's not only that those objects do not exist from their own side, but even the basis on which we designate the object is not already from its own side, waiting to be so designated. In other words, it's empty all the way down. That, that's the... That's the assertion. So when I was receiving Geshe Rapten's biography many years ago, now 72, he was meditating a lot on emptiness. And he commented, he would be meditating on the emptiness, among other things, of the pole, just a wooden kind of trunk that held up his roof, the pole, right in the middle of the, his little hut. And he'd be meditating on the emptiness of that. And he said, you know, if I spoke with people who don't understand Dharma, if I spoke to them about how things actually are, the insight that, that comes from realizing emptiness, people who don't know Dharma would just think I'm crazy. So I don't talk about it much. Right? But the point here is that if you just follow that straight track, shamat immediately into Vipassana, gain realization, 
then by that power of the, the fusion of shamatha vipassana, you get paranormal abilities right out of that, and that does happen. By very, very deep insight into emptiness, back with shamatha, that will give you paranormal abilities. Just with that, without, any, without having to add any external or other methods. Right. Let alone if you then penetrate and you just keep right on going, realizing the emptiness of all phenomena, inner and outer, and then just go right for the breakthrough to pristine awareness. If you tap into that, well, then you have the cities, especially from that perspective, then cities naturally arise without doing anything outside, anything special to develop cities. You develop cities in pretty much exactly the same way as you develop cities within a dream as you become more and more lucid. And that is insofar as you're really lucid, you really clearly fathom that this is a dream, which means then you know, because you are awake, because you know this is a dream, therefore you cannot avoid knowing that nothing that you're perceiving exists from its own side. Because if you still thought that, then you wouldn't know that you're dreaming, because that's just the nature of dreams. You know things are not really there from their own side. But in that wakefulness within the dream, which is such a strong parallel to realizing Rikpa, and realizing from that perspective of Rikpa that all phenomena are nothing other than displays of Rikpa. Rikpa is not just some luminous, quiescence, pure, primordially pure awareness. It is the source of all appearances, period. Not just your own local ones. You've gone into transcendent ground that is non-local, atemporal, beyond individuality. You tap into Rikpa, you've tapped into the very origin of all appearances in the universe, and you are awake. And you're seeing relative reality so similar to seeing a dream from the perspective of being awake. Well, of course, if you are awake within a dream, really deeply awake, thoroughly awake, then paranormal abilities come out of that direct insight. You don't need to get them from someplace else. So if you really do have some, if, kind of, if it really gets you, what the opportunities are in this life, then you don't want to be distracted, not even by this prospect, prospect of being able to develop exocentric perception by other techniques, because it will just come out of knowing reality as it is, just like in a lucid dream. In a lucid, in, when, you're, when you're in a non-lucid dream, then who knows, you might have to develop some special techniques to develop paranormal abilities in your dream, but become lucid and you get them anyway. That's because you know reality as it is. Oh yeah, here's another one. And this is from Regina. So Attention Revolution, stage 8, single-pointed attention, page 136. Buddhist contemplatives have drawn the conclusion that while the brain conditions the mind and is necessary for specific mental processes to arise as long as the substrate consciousness is embodied, the human psyche emerges from this underlying stream of consciousness that is embodied in the life after life. And... So, boy, that was well said, whoever the author of that book is. That's really good. <laughs> okay, and how, how much imprint in the psyche from previous karma conditions the mind or psyche? Big time. Big time. That's the, uh, the unknowable variable, or the complex variable, when trying to understand the psyche. And it's what is just absolutely left out. I mean, I mean absolutely left out in pretty much, I mean, with few exceptions here or there, which are absolutely not mainstream, but in terms of the modern scientific understanding of the mind, 
they're trying to understand it with an enormous amount of intelligence and technological sophistication and so forth. But the framework, the parameters of understanding why are people having this emotion, this thought, and so forth and so on, they're looking at it entirely within the context of this lifetime. So it starts at conception or sometime, whenever, and of course they don't know, whenever that fetus becomes conscious. But then even before that, there are genetic influences, there's environmental influences, dietary influences, there are educational, parental influences, a cultural relation, so nature and nurture. But there it is. And so the attempt there is to understand everything that goes on in the mind in terms of influences from within the context of this life. So there's one, there's one approach. And then the Buddhist approach is you're looking at Ponscom here. You're trying to understand Ponscom and from the, within the context of Ponscom. But you know, it is in a much larger pool of water. It's not pond scum all the way down. That's just the pond scum. That's just on the surface. And you're trying to understand everything just in terms of what's on the surface. And what's coming in is just enormous. And that is influences from past lives. And one will never gain, never gain a comprehensive understanding of the mind if one excludes those factors. And so there are, in terms of the qualities we're cultivating, deliberately cultivating, mindfulness, generosity, patience, and so forth and so on. It's said that there are two types in Tibetan. Yeah, yeah I can remember them. Getop. Getop are the, are the quality, virtues, one can say. The virtues that are, and this is a direct literal translation, that are achieved by birth or at birth. And that is, you come with them. You come with them. And they're not coming from genes. They're not coming from your parents. Your parents can't give you virtues. They just give you genes and then take care of your body, but they can't give you virtues as such. Uh, but there are qualities that people are simply born with that are qualities, and of course it can go negative and positive, uh, but let's just focus on the positive. And that is ones that you're born with, I mean little babies, and then young children and so forth, coming in with certain virtues that they just came with them. Right? And then if they nurture them, take, take care of them, if they meet with people, who recognize virtues as virtues and want to help the child cultivate them, deepen them, further them, oh, then that's great. Then you're really in good shape. I think that's a major reason why in Tibet and around the Himalayan area of Bhutan and Sikkim and so forth, there's been such a strong emphasis for quite a few hundreds of years now of really going, of Tibetans, Bhutanese, Sikkimese and so on, going out of their way to identify tulkus. Because after all, the tulku could, you know, if you're a good tulku, if you've really gained some deep realization in one lifetime, that should provide you with plenty of momentum to carry on and have a good life without any outside help. But they just want to make sure that you're getting all the help you possibly need. And so they will look for these children, try to identify them as early as possible, and then make sure that you know, they come in contact with tutors and the, the good circumstances so that those virtues the child is born with, being a tuku, from maybe a, a one, two, who knows how many lifetimes of really very disciplined, dedicated practice, that when it's coming in and say, like, you know, welcome, we're ready to take you to your next stage, to, to your next stage, to help you further develop. And so you find the teachers, the conducive environment. And so, and what they're hoping for, this is basically a good investment, I'm speaking of traditional Tibetan culture, is they figure, look, if we can give this child really good training from the age of three, then they'll mature really quickly. And, and as in the case of the Dalai Lama and Otoma Geshe Rinpoche and so many of these tulkus, they, they're in this like advanced placement class. When they, when they go into the training, they just, it just comes naturally like a duck to water. They pick it up really quickly. 
And so a training that might take 25, 30 years for a person who doesn't have the momentum, they'll polish it off in 15 years, 12 years. And this is the hope of the society. This is the rationale, is let's hope we can get this child into gear so that when the child is like only maybe 20, is all ready to start teaching. Because we will pick them up at age three and make sure they have the best teaching, get them back into gear, brush off their memories from past life, and so by the time they're 20, they're already mature practitioners who are well-educated, and then we'll have a teacher. So it's the fast track of getting teachers, and that's what they want. You know, they want to have really good teachers, and so that's, it's a good investment. So that's Gaitop. That's Gaitop. Those are the ones you're born with. And then there's Jangtop, and these are the ones, Jangtop means the virtues that you acquire through training, through training, coming for an eight-week retreat, going for a three-year retreat, whatever it may be, or just lifelong, or devoting oneself to dharma. And then you may be cultivating, acquiring, realizing virtues, insights, shamatha, vipassana, whatever it may be, that you never had, or at least yeah, not in the past life. In other words, kind of generating them afresh. But between those two, between those two influences, the one you're kind of born with, the momentum you're coming in with, and then the momentum you develop through practice in this lifetime, generally speaking, it said that the former is stronger than the latter. And the former is that what you're born with. So there you are. At the same time, if you say, ah, shucks, I wish I'd been born with more, then the answer to that is, good, then do it in this lifetime, and the next time you will be born with more. Right? So that's that. OK, a friend, a friend suffers from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And as a result, of abuse from a as a result of a, abuse from a relationship. She's received therapy, but requires more. I'm assuming this, uh, she is on medication. She has talked about taking her life when it gets really tough. Shall I suggest mindfulness of breathing as I feel settling the mind may stir up much trauma for her to cope with? She had asked about meditation. Okay, first thing I would say, uh, walk very gingerly. Uh, this is a, med a, mental, a mental disorder, a type of mental distress. There are professionals who know a lot about it, studied it for years, many, many scientific studies of PTSD. There are people professionally trained to treat it. So it's not to say that they have all the answers, but it is to say they have a lot of experience, and that should not be ignored. So to kind of say, well, never mind them. What do they know? Uh, we Buddhists, we have mindfulness of breathing. OK, what do we have? Well, we got mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness. Which one? Uh, mindfulness, I agree with you. Settling the mind, probably too much. Probably too much. We know it's you know, you're just facing right into the wind. And if the wind is a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, that can be overwhelming, the result of which would be cognitive fusion, which then can exacerbate the problem itself. So then that's no favor. Could mindfulness of breathing be helpful? Here I would suggest that the optimal thing would be to find a person who is professionally trained, uh, a psychologist, clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, but somebody who really has a lot of experience, knows the literature, knows the scientific studies, has experience treating people with that, and then see how to augment whatever that person has to offer, possibly with meditation. The optimal would be finding such a therapist who is a meditator, him or herself, and then say, all right, we have this here, and then work in this coalition between the two and not assuming that either side has all the answers, because we certainly don't. This is not generally, as I said before, treating mental illness, like clinical depress depression, very severe depression, 
general anxiety disorder, bipolar, um, schizophrenia, and so forth. Generally speaking, that is not just fresh off the shelf. You know, just get some Buddhist teachings. That's not the strength of Buddhist teachings. Uh, you would look, if you look into traditional literature in Pali, Sanskrit, Chinese, and so forth, you'll look in vain for a book on, this is the Buddhist treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. This is the book for schizophrenia. And here's our work on you know, clinical depression. You're not going to find it, right? Because the meditations taught in Buddhism are generally directed towards people who have fairly normal degree of dysfunctionality, are normally ill rather than exceptionally ill. In other words, we don't stand out in the crowd. And we can still be productive citizens, right? So there's a simple answer. And that is, I think there's a, there is, this is a very rich area for research. It's very, very important. Um, I've just written a paper for one Buddhist journal on depression, a Buddhist view of depression. And depression, general anxiety disorder, PTSD, ADHD, those are just four right off the top of the list. Uh, I think it could be immensely fruitful to have good, rigorous, scientific research being done by people. And this is what I, I so often don't see. Uh, is that you have, on the one hand, a high degree of professionalism from the scientific side, highly trained psychologists, neuroscientists, and so forth. And then when it gets to meditation, it's like amateur hour. As if, well, okay, what, what's meditation? Well, after all, meditation is just bare attention. I mean, that's what it boils down to. I was just, review, I just was responding to a paper, a scientific paper, and it's a very good paper, by colleagues of mine uh, reporting on one scientific project that I've been involved in. And these are very intelligent people and good motivation, and fine scientists. And they said, Medita meditation training is a method. Meditation training is a method for doing something, observing mental events or something. And I thought, wow, we still have to go back there, do we? Meditation training is a method. Would you please stop that? Good Lord. How many times do we have to tell you? This is 2,500 years of hundreds of methods, and that's just in Buddhism. So please, come on. It makes me cringe to think that people doing this so rigorous, and if it were stupid, stupid, that's a good pair. You know, stupid scientist, stupid contemplative, great union of stupidity. Okay, no problem. I mean, this is symmetry there. Amateur, amateur hour. Okay, no problem. But these are highly trained. These are people with PhDs, you know, and papers, scientific papers and credentials up the yazoo. And then talk about meditation, and they say the silliest things. Like meditation is just mindfulness. Meditation is just bare attention. Meditation is a method. So you can see I'm a bit impatient here, because after all, we should all know better by now. We really should all, we should all know. Anybody who's interested in the scientific study of meditation, at this point, come on. It's not just Omani Pemihum, it's not just awareness, it's not just TM, it's not just visualization, it's not just metta. It's a whole array. And now which specific meditation training are you referring to? And please call in an expert. You know, somebody with 10, 20, 30,000 hours. Because we don't think twice about calling in scientists with 10, 20, 30,000 hours of training. That's just, oh yeah, well sure, why not? So this is when I'm, you, you see some, some energy behind this. Um, and it's energy because there could be so much more benefit if professionalism met professionalism. You know, that there's rigor on both sides of the fence. 
I don't think that's too much to ask. But so often it doesn't happen. That one, is, one side is simply appropriating the other. It dumbs down meditation, so it's something really easy to handle, and then just takes it right over in the scientific category and says, oh yeah, we've we got meditation figured out. So I think we really have to outgrow that really quickly and bring in, and this, but this is, what, this is why there's so much passion in me. This is not just some intellectual deal and writing some, some paper. You know? This is treating people with suf- that are suffering. So let's not be stupid here. When we're dealing with ADHD, PTSD, that's crippling. Severe depression, there's not just one method. It's not just bare attention. There can be a wide variety of meditative methods. It can be very, very helpful, not just for treating depression, but getting right down to the root. Why are you depressed? What are the causes? And then shining a bright light of wisdom on those causes and getting it right from the root so you're not just always treating the symptoms. So this is why there's so much passion in me. Is that we could be doing, there could be so much more benefit if we draw from people who are very well-trained contemplative, who studied for years, meditated for years, racked up the tens of thousands of hours. Because, of course, we already expect that from the scientific side. You don't get high school kids doing a science fair, doing publishable studies on the scientific study of meditation. But that's what we get for the meditator side. It's science fair stuff. So, yeah, there's passion in me. But it's not just coming because I'm pissed off. It's coming because there could be so much more benefit. So, there we are. Let's just do our best to help people. In a, in a non-ethnocentric way, and ethnocentricity dominates this whole field. So what about somebody with ADHD who gets bouts of anxiety and depression and is on medication? Great, it's the same thing. There's a tremendous potential for benef- benefit here. There's no question in my mind. I do believe, and it's kind of transparent, shamatha could be really helpful here, because shamatha is exactly the direct opposite of ADHD. We know that. So more than kind of a, just a, an open awareness or spacious awareness, which has its own value, but that's not really a direct antidote for ADHD. Right. Shamatha, developing relaxation, stability, clarity. Now there is an antidote for ADHD. But now, to what extent should we have medication? Some people may really need it. Then we have to respect that. If you need the medication, good. And now can we gradually wean you off of that? And where's the therapist who is an expert on ADHD? Which I'm not. I've read some papers. That's it. I'm not an expert. I'm an amateur when it comes to clinical diag- you know, diagnosed ADHD. I'm an, I'm an amateur, but I'm not quite as much of an amateur when it comes to shamatha. Okay, another one. So I'm hoping to raise the second point of the question. This is from Bruce, because uh, he had two parts, and I re- responded at length to the first part. We never had a chance for the second part. And so I'd like to ask it live. And so maybe I should just stop right there, but I'll read it. I have a good example to illustrate it. It's about the opposite of graceful experiences. These are negative, uh, spontaneous, or seemingly random experiences that most of us wish we could banish from our practice, like sleepiness. I kind of like sleepiness myself, but only at the appropriate time. So, Bruce, sure. We can, uh, the microphone coming? Thank you. Thank you, Amita. Uh, this question has evolved a bit in the last Good. couple of days, but um, as I was speaking uh, the other day, I, I noticed there was the question around uh, grace and spontaneous things, and I noticed also my description of 
the difficulties that we sometimes encounter where we've done everything we know and it seems like it still doesn't work out. Uh, this can be in the realm of practice, a very simple one like sleepiness. I've, as I said the other day, I've slept. I've, uh, I know how to visualize light inside of me. I've done the whole list. And I, have, I went through my whole list of all these wonderful tools and resources that we have for this. Yeah. And the things that you shared, the, the six conditions, environment and yeah. letting go of desire and sure. being content and so forth. A few desires. Not so desires. my reflections have been around this group of things that come up. And it, uh, it's come up for me right now because this is an interesting point. Today, Saturday, is for me the start of the last three weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've started a couple other times during this retreat. Good. And I look back now five weeks and thought, well, gee, how did it go? So there's some valuation a bit. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, this is a big deal for me, uh, sure. coming all this way. And uh, along with that, uh, I'm kind of looking at these next three weeks as almost their own retreat. That's good. Because things didn't happen quite the way I'd planned or maybe imagined in the last five weeks. Uh -huh. And I wrote out my schedule a couple times. And, uh -huh. uh, and there's been an elephant that showed up in my room. I don't know if any of you have had that happen. It's, uh, I just had a, I just had a uh, gecko. You know, we got these big rooms, and we have these double beds or whatever. I have a king-size bed, and... Um, I woke up one night in the middle of the night and there was this creature next to me, looked like an elephant, and so I did what Alan said, pull your nose, and, and my nose was solid. And uh, <laughs> as soon as this guy saw me wake up to go pee, he got big, he started puffed up, and the whole room filled up and I got claustrophobic. And I kind of turned the AC off real quick and went to the slider, opened it so I could look out, kind of squeeze past him, and this continued. So it's been a real, you know, um, challenge in my sleep. I don't usually have that kind of problem. And I, I'm sure you have variations on, there are different elephants. This Thailand is known for its elephants. Uh, so this one example, these things that happen and in our practice or come from elsewhere, you know, a very somber one uh, yesterday, two days ago, an email about someone who committed suicide and someone in my circle of people. Uh, so I'm listening and I've heard you say a lot. I, I think of karma, you know, what, what, are the, what are the grounds for this? And ultimately the question is, uh, I suppose around, is there somewhere where I have to evaluate my natural talent for this? I don't usually think that way, but is there something, I'm in this big you know, eight-week retreat for me, and uh, how have I done for five weeks? And, you know, well, uh, so I can look at karma. You've talked a lot about that reincarnation. You just, a few minutes ago, talked about the tulkus and the uh, coming in with what we come in. So, you know, in a way, in a Christian framework, you could also look at it, the chosen people, or you could look at it from original sin or whatever, all these sorts of things. And luckily, that's not my framework uh, but I like to think, and I have been, I think, my whole life, more or less, that uh, pretty much anybody can take up this meditation and have good success, maybe really great success. But when you come up against these issues sometimes, it's a challenge. So am I missing something here in the teachings? I want to keep this simple. I okay. could go on, but sure. or in your experience. Sure. Other than, or if you want karma and reincarnation, what we come in with... Uh, what are our capacities? Is there an IQ for... <laughs> I understand. Yeah, thank you. 
I think it's helpful to come in from two perspectives, two very different perspectives. And one is just straight, just straight experience without a background framework, just what's happening within the context of this life. There we are. And so in other words, no element of faith or reliance on authority or tukus or Tibetan tradition, etc., etc. Um, so just in the context of what we're aware of, I look at the practices that we've been exploring here and why we're doing the practices. Because it's not like, like with golf, I think there's a very good golf course near here. With golf, we didn't come in, I don't think any of us came in with major golf disabilities that was really screwing up our life. You know, like anti-golf predispositions that ruins our relationships because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't hit, I couldn't putt, and so forth. So some people are talented for golf and some are not. And if you're not talented, or me like drawing and painting, I wanted to be talented, I just wasn't. And I don't think there's anything I could do. It was one of those kids, I didn't have it. I wasn't born with natural ability. And so I recognized that, and I said, well, okay, I think it's not worth my effort to strive really diligently to, to, to ascend to the level of mediocrity, which is, I, th I think, really probably all I was really capable of in this lifetime. So when it comes to those kind of things, and I'm not disparaging art or golf. I mean, well, golf, nice game. Um, but then the question of talent, and, then the, and, and behind the question is, if I'm not talented, is it really worthwhile? And my answer is no. I doubt that I'm, I'm gifted for golf. I have no reason to believe I would be. Mathematics, I'm also not very gifted. I could do it with just a lot of hard work, and I did it well enough that I could do what I wanted to do. That was study physics and so forth. But I'm not naturally gifted for mathematics either. Good enough that I could, yeah, I could do the work. Um, but then I stopped, and I forgot most of the mathematics I knew. Because I don't need it, and I, really, I don't mind that I've forgotten it. But what I'm doing is there's mathematics, there's golf, there's art. And if you're not talented, you might want to just release it. Say, okay, maybe not this lifetime. But then I look at the shamatha and the four measurables. I say, wait, wait, this is just totally different. It's just totally different. And that is, I already have a mind. Before I ever encountered Buddhism, that was tended to be stressed out, tight, uptight, rigid, tended to be lots of rumination and agitation, and then exhausting myself, falling into dullness. And that combo really just screws up everything. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. That's not a helpful. Any one of those three is not helpful. Combine the three, and that's lethal. You know, and screws up everything. Interpersonal relationships, being a student, being a anything. It screws up everything. And I came with it before I ever encountered it. So it's not just having no artistic ability. It's, it's really actively involved on the other side, on the negative side. And likewise for the four measurables. I mean, some, it's no question. Some people from birth on, they're just much more affectionate. Some people are just more warm-hearted. Warm -hearted, not just more emotional. I mean, generally, really, simply spontaneously care about others more naturally, more affectionate, more loving, more empathetic. Some people just have greater equanimity, just cool, more grounded, more equilibrium altogether. Some people with no Dharma training whatsoever, just there they are. But wherever we are on any galaxy, wherever I'm born in any lifetime, 
I want shamatha. I don't care about the label. You can call it anything you like. Call it centering prayer. I don't care what you call it. But those qualities, the opposite qualities, are debilitating. And they also bring a lot of suffering that's not necessary. And, they de- and, and insofar as it developed, it's all good. And likewise, being just caught up in my own affairs, being indifferent to other people, kind of hard heart, and, e- and then probably just hard on myself, beating up myself, because I don't really like anybody, then beating up on this one. So no loving kindness in any direction. No real compassion, just harshness and condemnation and judging. And no real empathy, because it's kind of cynical. And no equilibrium, because of course, everything's topsy-turvy. It's good day, one day, bad day, up day, up down, up down, up down. Oh, that life just sucks. If it were possible to commit suicide, I would go for it. Better not exist than have a life like that. Because that just sucks. It's, it's disease. It's terrible. I don't want to live that way. Sometimes on occasion, I wish that suicide were really possible. Not that I couldn't find a bullet, but that's the bummer. Is it's out of the frying pan and into the kettle, or whatever they say. You know, it's just out of one miserable situation into another. I really, sometimes really wish that weren't the case. But when I was dying, I mean, I was really, really close. When I was 23, 23, yeah, 23. When I was dying, I was just within hand's reach of dying from my third case of hepatitis, you know? Down to 135 pounds, and I was peeing. My pee was the color of Coca-Cola. I was one sad, really sick cookie. And they were doing death puja for me just in the, in the hall across the way a little bit. I thought it was a bit premature. <laughs> and I don't think they wanted my relics. I think maybe they wanted my bed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But when I was facing that, when, when death was kind of like, as far as you are from me right now, hi, uh, the thought came up, maybe it's just going to be lights out. Maybe this is just going to be like that. And already, I was only 23. But the thought, yeah, you wish. It's not an option. One may wish it does. One may wish to live forever. One may want to be reincarnated. But it's kind of like liking gravity or not liking gravity, from my perspective. And that's what I already saw from the age of 23, is now all that's missing is this real possible termination of this really incredibly juicy opportunity that I found and had only for three years. And that's what really, that really got to me. I was not happy. I was not happy. Not at dying, but I'd found this, and I had only three years, and I really didn't want to die. So, the issue of talent, kind of like whatever. Are you talented at breathing or not? Some people have asthma. Some people have bronchitis. Some people have congestion. Some people have TB. They're not so gifted, not so talented at breathing. But one way or another, you've got to breathe. And so whether it's long or short, that's the way it is. It's just the way it is. If it's just indispensable, if it's utterly meaningful, however long it takes. So I've done, on a real quick tangent, because I want to get to the last one here, which is a real diller, real doozy. Uh, Stephen LaBerge. We've done a number of workshops together. And he has lots and lots of experience teaching people in lucid dreaming. And of course, some people are gifted and some people are not. That's it. Some people, we had 
at least one person. She said she never remembered any dreams when she came to the workshop because her husband was there. And other people having lucid dreams every night. So we had a big bandwidth. And Stephen's response to this, drawn from you know, years and years and years of teaching it, he said, look, some people are more gifted, some people less gifted. But if you put in the time, you can get better. You can start recalling dreams. And then you can start, and then you can start. And that's the beauty of this lucid dreaming, these techniques, that they really start from the shallow end of the pool. Can you remember any dreams at all? You know, and then the state checks. So you know, he said, whoever you are. But the phrasing also, because I li listen very carefully to your wording. I generally do. And he said, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. That's what you say when you've just read a book and you've read the last page. It didn't work out. Because the book's finished. So Stephen says, never tell yourself that. Never tell yourself, no matter how hard I try, I can never have a lucid dream. Rephrase that. Until now, I've never had a lucid dream. But tonight is another night. Keep it open, because the book's not finished yet. And we're writing it. Oh, yeah. Here's a doozy. We may go on five minutes, but no more than five minutes. How does Buddhism explain the fact that some mediums are apparently making contact with dead people who passed away a long time ago? In theory, they should be in another rebirth. Who are they contacting with, and are their methods genuine, or is it all a delusion? So, unfortunately, in that area, as William James and, and Alan Russell Wallace, no, no, Alan? Alfred. Al 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 Alfred Russell Wallace. <laughs> Alfred Russell Wallace, co-discoverer co of, uh, I, I empathize with him a lot. It's Al Wallace. It is Al Wallace, but his is Alfred. Um, but they were contemporaries in the late, late 19th century. William James, one of my heroes, and Alfred Russell Wallace. Also, I have, I, I have a lot of respect for him, a lot of respect. Much more open-minded than most scientists of his era, including T.H. Huxley and Darwin himself. Much more open to evidence that didn't fit into this kind of nice, neat, materialistic framework, where people can feel just so, OK, now I got it all figured out. And he said, you got it all figured out except for, oh, by the way, you haven't explained consciousness. And what about these anomalies? And I saw, I, I read a whole book on Alfred Russell Wallace in Darwin's Shadow, is the name of the book. Um, quite prejudicial, but, but a lot of good scholarship in it as well, um, because he and, and William James on the other side of the Atlantic, Wallace being, of course, in England, they recognized that, unfortunately, in that field, there was just a lot of chicanery, deception, fraud, just lying to people, trickery, to dupe people, to deceive people. It's really unfortunate, because it was all over the place. It was really quite common. And then he says, oh, geez, then we, have to, we have to pile through all this crap to see if there's anything here that is authentic. When Newton was, you know, investigating natural laws, there was not a lot of chicanery of people pretending this and pretending that. I mean, just, it was a nice, clean field. Do your experiments, and there it is. But when people are trying, like Alfred Russell Wallace, trying to do some research here, there was just so much, can I use the word, bullshit. And then people like T.H. Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, uh, and, Hux and, and uh, Darwin himself, when they would hear about it, they would, they would just get disgusted. And they say, we're not even interested in anything you would come up with 
this is not for us to investigate. This is for private investigators. Because you're dealing with frauds here. And we're scientists, and we're not trained how to identify fraudulent behavior. And that's what, princip and that's what private eyes are for. So we won't even touch that crap. Because we already know it's not true for starters. And that's where the, the, the dogmatism just stepped in with an ironclad fence. And they wouldn't even look at it. But William James in, in America, and then Alfred Russell Wallace in England, said, yeah, you know, these are two extremely intelligent people. And they said, we know there's a lot of bullshit. You didn't tell us anything new here. But now as we're sifting through all the crap, now look at that one. One out of 100, look at that one. It's like Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker saying, sure, a lot of kids have great imaginations. They watch television. Maybe they're being tricky. Maybe, they're, maybe their parents want their kids to be famous. Oh, look at my child. My child can remember past life. Of course, of course. There's a lot of crap or just stuff. But in the midst of all of that, are you willing to reach into the pile of manure and see if you can find some gold nuggets and not just say, no, I won't look. It's all manure. I'm sure of it because it doesn't conform to my beliefs. So coming back to this, then and now, I'm sure there's just a lot of, even if it's not downright fraud, it's people taking, it's people being undiscerning when it comes to having imagery, imagery, thoughts, intuitions coming to mind and believing what's ever dished up, thinking, oh yeah, this was my past life, or oh, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this, and this must be true. You know? And just because they think it. And I have such good feel for things. And you must speak in very weavy voices when you say <laughs> This is much more compelling. You know? So when people themselves you know, are just kind of goofy and undiscerning and uncritical, then they think whatever comes to mind must be true. I'm feeling something special. Ah, let me see your palm. You know? And so there's all that. You have to dig through all that stuff. But in the midst of it, might there be authentic mediums? Are we willing to be patient enough and then not only be patient enough, but actually be willing to, to question the dominant paradigm of materialism that the mind is just product of the brain? So let's imagine now, let's imagine that among the, the pile of manure of self-delusion and active fraudulence, there are some individuals here and there who actually do have direct perceptions of the relatives, for example, the dead relatives of certain people. And, they, and then, when they are channeling, when they are engaging with, listening to these dead people, the information they're coming up with is true, validated by the, the living relatives. And there is just no, beyond all reasonable doubt, there's no way they can know that information unless they got it from that dead relative. And let's imagine that the person has been dead for more than seven weeks, the period of the bardo. So that certainly raises a challenge. And this means that a person like myself, who feels frankly very much at home in, in a Buddhist worldview, not all of it taken literally, but I think you know where I'm standing, is, okay, well, that, that doesn't, that not easily, how do you say, compatibilized with the overall Buddhist worldview that 49 days and you're off someplace. So... Shall we just say, well, maybe we just throw out the Buddhist worldview that dead souls go off and just hang out waiting for a medium to speak to them? 
and looking, by the way, pretty much like they did just before they died, indefinitely. Waiting for some medium, hello, I'm waiting. I must say I don't find it very appealing, but then some aspects of reality aren't, appeal aren't appealing. So can one make any sense of that from Mudra's perspective? Maybe it's true. Maybe you die, and you basically hang out in a limbo with a form very much like the one you died with, hopefully not how you looked on your deathbed, because then it would really be ugly. Everybody would be so ugly, but maybe a little bit, a little bit younger anyway. And it would be interesting if you're wearing the same clothes. You know, Peruvians wearing Peruvian and... African natives, you know, that would be an interesting place. Kind of a UN of dead people. <laughs> Could be true. Could be true. And that would be the natural explanation, is everybody's just hanging out in a limbo and for a very long time. That's possible. It's also possible, though, the question was asked earlier, if we take at least it's a working hypothesis or just suspending judgment for a moment and saying, well, okay, let's imagine these children that Ian Stevenson and his colleagues around the world have identified who allegedly have past life uh, uh, recall, but it's always past life recall of human existence and not dogs and pretas and devas and so forth and so on. I responded to that. So how about the medium? The medium generally, generally there's no, as far as I know, I've never heard of a medium training school. There are? Yeah, what, in Brazil, probably. If anywhere in Brazil, they must be. In London? Yeah? And so you come in no, not a medium, and you come out medium. And then if you stay in a long time, you well, come out well cooked. <laughs> Overdone. Um, no, it, it really shouldn't surprise that there would be training for it. Um, military purposes, yeah. yeah. Damn Ruskies. Unlike the CIA, who are really out to do benevolent things. Uh, but the point there is that I'm getting at is that I would be quite surprised, and I've been surprised before, so maybe I'm just going to be surprised again, but I'd be quite surprised if a person who is naturally a medium, and my sense is most of the accomplished ones are just naturally gifted in that way, or ones who are trained, maybe they had a, bit, a little bit of gift and then trained it further, like Stephen LeBaire's training people with a gift, and then it gets more gifted as they train. I'd be surprised if that entails the achievement of shamatha that pretty much takes months, if not years, of you know, very intensive meditative training. And so if that's the case, and I'm trying to speak very delicate here, but a bit of humor, but it's not ridicule, because we have to, you know, have to keep an open mind. But if the, the, psyche, the psyche of the medium is still working within that psyche framework, then whatever appears will be something that appears that is sensible to a human mind. Because just like the children are not recalling hell rebirths or praetor rebirths and so forth, they're getting rebirths that make sense to them with their child human minds. And so they're getting human rebirths. And if there are ones in between that are other species, they just don't pick them up. It's out of the bandwidth. It's like we, just, we don't see infrared and ultraviolet. Just not with these eyeballs, right? These eyeballs, we only get our bandwidth. And human, you only get the bandwidth of, I'm, a, I'm looking from the perspective of a human psyche, and I'm seeing within that bandwidth. Not the bandwidth of the ultraviolet of devas or the infrared of animals and hell beings and so forth. And so, so, it would make sense then, if this is true, and, it may, and I suspect it's not all chicanery. That is my own opinion. I don't think it's all fraudulent. I don't think so. 
So that means I have to take it seriously. It has no real impact on my life because I'm not seeking out mediums. But on the other hand, do I believe in oracles in the Tibetan tradition? Oracle, yeah, I do. I've seen some pretty compelling evidence for that. So that's certainly in the same ballpark. So if the medium, to wrap this up, I said I'd go only five minutes and I've lied, is if the medium is operating out of the bandwidth of human psyche, then when individuals appear, you're going to be seeing people that you can make sense of. Do you really know what a preta looks like? An animal, yes, but then you don't really expect to have an animal come up and start barking at you. You need an interpreter. <laughs> you, know, you need a medium interpreter who can speak you know, Canineese and human, and, and I, don't, I think they're very rare. And so even if an animal popped up, you wouldn't know how to communicate. <laughs> Your relative is very happy. Dead mother is born as a cat. She really likes catnip. <laughs> She's a very happy cat. She purrs very nicely. They're seeing them as human beings. And they're seeing them as human beings in quite familiar form. Human beings on our planet, for example. And so I've, I've heard Tibetan lamas respond to this. We'll wrap it up now. Uh, I've heard Tibetan lamas respond to this. And they say, number one, uh, not all relatives show up. Some, but not others. And so if we are to take this seriously, which we should, we should at least you know, give it a fair chance, give it an even playing ground, not with ridicule. I'm having fun here, but it's not a ridicule, because I said, I, I believe this actually does happen. And we have to make sense of it. If you don't believe it happened, then you don't have to make sense of it. Either way, it's fine. But if they are born as pretas, for example, or as spirits, some kind of spirit, and there's a wide variety, they're not going to manifest to the medium as a spirit, most likely. They're going to manifest in a form that's familiar. And they will have the information, because the mind continuum is the same mind continuum as the person who died, and so could give veridical information. Now, if they've taken a more fortunate rebirth, like a, as a deva, as a deva, then, again, an ordinary person working in the bandwidth of human psyche will not be able to see what a deva looks like. You can't imagine it. It's not within our framework. And so that deva then would appear something more like human being. You know. But now, with another rebirth, as a deva, but be able to communicate and taking on a form that the medium can make sense of, and the person would say, I'm such and such a person. And devas are like magicians. They can manifest in the way they like. And so they would manifest probably in a form similar to the one they took if they really wanted to communicate with a living relative. So it could be devas. It could be spirits, a wide variety of spirits, not just pretas, you know, having miserable preta lives, but there's a lot of other variety, pretty much you know, in contemplative traditions around the world. So that would be the case. And so there, there are alternative, in short and in summary, there are alternative interpretations or ways of viewing or trying to make sense of this that doesn't simply have all dead people going and hanging out, looking just from any perspective, from the God's eye perspective, just hanging out indefinitely in the form that they were in the latter part of their lives the last time, and just hanging out indefinitely, wearing the same, same clothes. There are alternative, I find that, I mean, as you can tell, I, I'm not really that crazy about variety of clothes. 
doesn't bother me too much. But all the women? <laughs> Can you imagine? I think they would definitely want to take rebirth. <laughs> Anything for a change of clothes. <laughs> okay, I hope my comments have been received as been offered. In good cheer, a bit of light-heartedness, light, light uh, but not ridicule, not disparagement. I think it's, it's mysterious, and there are other mysterious mysteries as well. And it would be interesting to know. But that's my best shot. Hola, so. Can I give my mudra? See you around. Have a good day. Have a good weekend. Uh -huh.